one of the most common themes was I really liked the person you matched me with for the bottle cap and you really got it right. And I connected with that person so much. And I have to tell you, Sam, it was completely random. (laughs) Imagine you're sitting with your phone in your hand, looking at random people's faces on your screen. In other words, you're dating in 2021. You swipe left and right, but it's difficult to know if we're making the right choices. There's a massive information asymmetry in place, and all of the complexity and nuance of the people you see is often reduced to your gut reaction from seeing their photo. In economics, this is called the lemon problem. Faced with this, how can you improve your chances of finding a long-term partner in this game of swiping? And Putting on your behavioral design hat for a second, how would you improve this experience for others? Could insights from behavioral science solve this and other thorny problems related to modern love? Today's guest, Logan Yuri, has made it her career trying to answer these questions. Previously leading Google's behavioral science team, she is now the director of relationship science at the popular dating app Hinge and the author of the recent book, How to Not Die Alone. The book is about the surprising science that help people find love. And that's what we'll be exploring in this episode, as well as learning more about how Logan was able to build a successful career combining her passion for behavioral science and relationship science. Welcome to the Behavioral Design Podcast. My name is Samuel Salser, and I'm your host. Let's get the show started. So I'm very excited to say welcome, Logan, to the Behavioral Design Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you, Sam. Awesome. Well, there's so many things I'm looking forward to discussing with you, but I want to start with you and... For me, it's quite fun to see someone who is coming with a behavioral science background, but also has the title of, I think it's Head of Relationship at Hinge. Is that the title? Yeah, Director of Relationship Science. Director. There you go. Even better. Yeah. So I'm then curious in terms of how did you go about getting started in the field? I think I know that you got started a little bit in Google, worked a little bit at Airbnb, But how do you end up taking this kind of route towards relationships? Yeah, so I've had these two passions for a long time, the passion for psychology and decision-making science, and then the passion for dating and relationships. And this goes back many years, I think, starting with my parents' divorce and just understanding that this whole idea of happily ever after is not guaranteed. And so really, when I was 17 and my parents got divorced in a sort of surprising way, it really helped me understand that relationships take work and it's not just like this set it and forget it thing. And I think that that is really the origin of my interest in understanding relationships, understanding what makes relationships work and and really pursuing that in a serious and rigorous way. And so from a career perspective, I had this great job at Google. I got to work with Dan Ariely. I got to learn alongside him, and I really loved that job, helping to lead the behavioral science team at Google, because it was exactly what's interesting to me. It's taking the academic field and applying it 
and saying, well, what do we know about identity? What do we know about reinforcing identity? How can we use that to increase the chances of somebody finishing the onboarding or something like that? And so I really love the applied behavioral science. And I loved that role at Google and I loved working with Dan. However, at the time that I was helping to lead the Irrational Lab at Google, I was also single and I was on the dating apps and I was struggling. And I remember the first night I downloaded Tinder, I was swiping for six hours and it just felt so overwhelming. <laughs> it's going on all. I know it's crazy, but you're just like, holy cow, like all these people I can date and like the way that it yeah. was set up, it, it felt like a game and it felt like, of course, everyone's going to be interested in you. And you sort of, you feel like you're at a party and you're in the center of the room and and everyone's attention is focused on you. That's just how it feels when you swipe. And so I was struggling. I was talking to a lot of other people who are struggling. I was at Google with all these brilliant people, but we were all having a hard time. And so for the last six years or so, the question has been, how do I take my interests in dating and relationships and combine them with my interests in behavioral science? And so it's taken a few different forms. And so one thing that I did when I was at Google was I had this platform called Talks at Google which was the ability to bring in experts and have conversations with them. And so that was actually the beginning of my research into this. And I had some great conversations with Dan and with Sherry Turkle of MIT and with Dossie Easton, who's an expert in polyamory. And so I started having these conversations and then I started combining them into talks about what behavioral science can teach you about dating. And then eventually I just decided to do it full time. And that's taken on a few forms. That's taken on a residency at TED, where I did research into breakups. It's taken on writing this book, which is behavioral science applied to dating. And then, of course, it also is my role at Hinge, where I help lead a research team, where we try to figure out what makes people successful at dating, and then how can we teach others how to do that. And Hinge is all about helping people delete the app. And so it's really fun to say, what are the things that people get wrong? What are the things that people get right? And then how do we teach the world how to date better? Yeah, I look forward to diving into that a little bit more. But I guess I want to stay on this topic a little bit further because you have done something that I think a lot of people would like to do, which is to think this idea of working in behavioral science or applied behavioral science, usually people think about it. You have to be, you know, this kind of fitting a certain mold of being a behavioral scientist, working very specific kind of jobs. For example, very commonly, maybe working in public health, uh, let's say. But really, behavioral science is such a unique tool that can be applied in so many different realms. And you can really apply it to so many different things, depending on what your passions and interests are. So do you have any kind of thoughts or advice on like, taking those steps from, let's say, being at Google to then actually now working with, maybe we start as curiosity, but now maybe it seems like more like a passion. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I want to say is just that I feel lucky. I feel lucky to be able to have turned my passion into a career. I feel lucky to get to talk and think about dating all the time. I do get emails from people saying, I think you have my dream job. And, you know, I just, I do feel really lucky about that. Like, mm -hmm. it's really fun to be in a meeting where we're talking about what the perfect opening line is in a dating app conversation, because that's what I want to be talking about anyway. And so some of it is luck. And I, I, I just do want to acknowledge that. I think that what I have done well at every step of the way is just pursue what's interesting to me. And so I was fascinated by behavioral science. I was fascinated by Dan's work and predictably irrational. And I was in this marketing program at Google 
and it was called the Associate Product Marketing Manager Program. And so you did a one-year stint in one marketing team, and then you did this other one-year stint in another marketing team, and you got to meet with Google's CMO for seven minutes, literally seven minutes with her. That's how busy she is, to talk to her about what your next job should be. Hmm. And for mine, I said, the job I'm looking for doesn't exist. I want to create a role working with the behavioral science team, working with the irrational lab team. I'm pretty cheap. You know, I, I was like a junior person at the time at Google. And here's why you should create the headcount for me. And so I used those seven minutes to create my job. And so that was, I think, back in 2013 or back in 2014. And so even at that point, I said, what do I love? I love behavioral science. I'm going to create this role. And it was just so incredible to learn with Dan. And then moving forward, you know, there wasn't a toxic Google program about dating and relationships, but I made one. I created toxic Google modern romance. I said, I want to learn more about this. I have the ability to invite these experts in for free. What do they want? They want exposure. They want an audience. So what I have is Google and I was able to make these relationships. And so mentors of mine, people like Eli Finkel, who's a great relationship scientist at Northwestern, Esther Perel, who many people know about. She's a famous couples therapist. She has wonderful books and podcasts. Dan Savage. I met all of these people through the Toxic Google program. And so, so much of it was saying, what am I interested in? What is available to me in terms of opportunities? And then how can I really push that? And so it was all about at every stage saying, what's the next thing? And so when I, I actually went to Airbnb briefly between Google and doing this, and I quit my job in tech and I said, I want to figure out what this looks like full time. And TED became the program in which I figured that out. And then through TED, I got the book deal. And so it's not that I know 10 steps ahead where I'm going. It's that every stage of the game, I say, what am I interested in? What do I see as a problem that I could help solve? And what are the resources that I have available to me? And it's not that I had a crazy network that anyone handed me. It's not like my parents are professors or relationship scientists or behavioral scientists, right? It's not that I have those connections. It's that I, every moment I think I've been good at saying, what are opportunities that are available to me and how do I use those to the fullest to get to the next stage? And I am really excited about where I am right now. And so I think for anyone who's listening who says, I want to apply behavioral science to X, I would encourage them to think about what are the biggest problems? What are the problems that no one else is solving? What are your favorite aspects of the research that could be applied? And really understanding um, what's out there and where is the opportunity? That's great. Very inspiring, actually. I think the last question on this is, was it that you had to take the leap before you kind of knew if it was a good idea or were you kind of waiting for the security of kind of the next step? Yeah, when I was at Harvard, I was in a class taught by Tal Ben-Shahar, who's great in the field of positive psychology and taught this really popular class on happiness. And he had this expression, throw your backpack over the fence. And the idea is that if you want to get to the next stage, you have to create the point of no return. And so if you want to get over the fence, throw your backpack there and you'll have to follow it. And so I did do that a few times such as quitting my job at Airbnb and saying, I'm going to figure out a way to make money from this, even though I didn't have a plan. And even though the TED residency was not paid and I was bouncing around from couch to couch in New York to make that work. Yeah, very inspiring. And I can also say, I think people listening might know already that I took a very similar route in my career. I was in a stage where I was more thinking I would do more economics actually in finance and then being thrown into the world of behavioral science and loving it. And then being desperate to kind of build my career towards having the role I have today. 
And part of that was, you know, like kind of what you're saying in a strategic way, thinking about how to <laughs> set it up so that you're probably not going to have the best opportunities just randomly coming to you. You might be lucky, but a lot of times you have to kind of somewhat create those. And I think you mentioned a lot of important parts to helping create those opportunities. So, so yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. There's one other story I'll add there, which is, do you know the podcast 99% Invisible? Love that podcast. Yes. Yeah, me too. Roman Mars. Roman Mars. So I really like that podcast, especially it's Bay Area. It's beautiful. I love his voice. Everything about the podcast production and the content was really appealing to me. And so I emailed Roman Mars and I said, I work at Google. I do talks at Google on the side. Would you want to come in? And he came in to do an event with me. And my boyfriend, now husband, was outside the room. And someone said, why does she get to do this? Why does she get to host Roman Mars? And when I heard that story, I was like, I feel like that's the essence of who I am, is that people think that there was an opportunity where they said, who wants to host Roman Mars, raise your hand, and that I was selected. But that's not really how life works. No one ever says, here's the opportunity, raise your hand. You have to create that opportunity. And so that person could have emailed Roman Mars too. That person was just as eligible as me. She worked at Google. She could have asked to do this. And so I I don't mean to say this in an arrogant way, but I think for anyone listening who wants to follow in a similar path, if you imagine that life is someone saying, raise your hand if you want this opportunity, how can you shift your mindset to saying, I am going to pursue this on my own. I am going to create this opportunity. And really, I think that if you can make that shift and it, it does take you know, faking it till you make it. And it, you know, I, I feel imposter syndrome all the time, but I think understanding that most of the best opportunities in life were created, they weren't handed to someone. Yeah. I couldn't say it better myself. That's music to my ears. So yeah, thanks for sharing that perspective. And I guess you obviously mentioned uh, Hinge a little bit and, and your work there. I'm naturally super curious about how you think about applying behavioral science in a dating app. I think when I look at the different problems in the world, when it comes to behavioral problems, I would say that some of the more complex ones happen to do with, you know, relationships. Like, how do we both help people form relationship but also maintain them? And I guess you're in that first part, especially, um, but perhaps also setting people up for success in the long run. So, how how have you thought about the idea of bringing behavioral science to a dating app? Yeah. So one thing I should clarify is that, you know, while I do have the behavioral science lens at Hinge and I do often talk about things in terms of nudges and key behavior and friction and increasing benefits, my role is not traditionally behavioral science there. It's more working as part of this research team, Hinge Labs. Just, you know, want to uh, mm. mention that nuance for the sake of this conversation. But how I think about it in the book when I have a chapter on dating apps and when I th think about applying behavioral science is that. Of course, we are so impacted by the environment in which we make our decisions and the environment in which we make our decisions right now is the dating app. And even if you are someone who's not on a dating app, but you're going out with someone who's on the dating app, it's going to impact your relationships because that person is impacted by it. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about things like how does the paradox of choice affect how much you value each person? And so if you were to meet someone and have an okay connection, and then you could just say, well, I'll just keep swiping and find someone better, at what point do you ever stop swiping? And I, I think that that maximizing behavior is something that I've seen a lot. And it makes me think about pandemic dating, because what I've seen happen during the pandemic is that it's harder to meet people, and it's more complicated to meet up. And I have seen people value each other more. I have several friends in this category of 
were the type of person that went from first date to first date. Maybe they would get into one month, three month long relationships, but always hopping from this to that. And, you know, they truly had not been in relationships for more than a few months in the 10 years I had known them. And now, because meeting up is more complicated, several of them have gotten into relationships for the first time in a long time. And I think that that's such an interesting silver lining to this moment is the fact that people have changed their behavior and people are are valuing each other more. Right. And what, in terms of the environments, what are the different factors you think has had the most influence in creating that shift? For these people in particular who I'm thinking about, I think some of it is just that when you have patterns of behavior, it's hard to change. And so the fact that the pandemic was this jolt to our system and mm. everything changed, you know, the way that we work has changed, the way that we are socialized has changed, the way that we interact with people out and about has changed, right? And so just from a behavioral change perspective, it's an opportunity for people to rewrite their patterns and rules in a way that I don't think that they would have in 2020 otherwise. Like a 33-year-old man who had been doing the same thing for 11 years, I don't think all of a sudden in 2020 would have changed his behavior. But because every part of his life changed, this part changed too. And so some of it is that. And the other piece is what I was referring to, which is If you feel like there's just thousands of people at your fingertip, if you go on a date with someone and they are not your exact fantasy of what you hoped, then you just say, I bet there's someone out there who's 5% hotter, 5% more ambitious, 5% more interesting. And you're always optimizing and looking for the next best person. But if you realize that meeting up with someone is complicated, that introducing them to your bubble is hard, that you are not meeting people out and about at weddings and bars, then I think it actually helps you value those individual connections more and actually give Mm -hmm. someone a chance and invest. And that's so critical because one of the biggest problems I see people making is that they think it's 99% about partner selection and then 1% about the effort you put into the relationship and that that's somehow the equation for good partnership. And I don't have the exact number, but it's so much more about choosing someone great, but then really investing in the relationship. And why I want people to shift away from that 99% model is that I think it puts way too much pressure on who you choose and not enough pressure on what you're putting into the relationship. And so I have found that during the pandemic, people are making that shift where they say, this person is great, and I'm going to invest and see what develops versus this person is great and what else is out there. I think that goes into this age old, this kind of idea of obviously love at first sight that's been kind of a day or like find, find, feeling a spark in some ways. And I think uh, you, you can agree with me or disagree, but I think you would agree that the idea of also like swiping contributes to the idea of like, you know, I'm going to swipe until I find that spark that, you know, love at first sight. And then that's when we find that connection, maybe through some simple messaging as well. Then, okay, that's that's me finding my part. Uh, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah. And I, I do have a chapter called Fuck the Spark. And <laughs> it's know. all about uh, breaking the myths of the spark and why the spark is an unhelpful way to think about relationships. And one thing I should say is if anyone's listening and saying, you know, why is she criticizing dating apps and works at a dating app? You know, there is a a simple story to that, which is that when I was researching the book, I had the chance to meet with the CEO of Hinge. And I said to him, your tagline is designed to be deleted. That just doesn't make sense. I've worked at many tech companies. We always talk about growth. We talk about cost of acquisition. We talk about churn. And why would you want to have a tagline that's about churn? And he said, when we made this shift to being the relationship app and designed to be deleted, 
we've grown faster than ever, ever since then. And it's because if you meet your partner on Hinge and you tell people about it, that word of mouth referral is so much more powerful than any sort of gamified approach on the app. And since I've been at Hinge, I can tell you that I've never been in a conversation about optimizing time spent on app or or gamifying in any way. It really is focused on how can we give people better matches? How can we teach them how to use the app better? How can we empower people both in terms of making their profile and connecting? And so I do feel like Hinge is very intentional about getting people into relationships. And so that's that's meaningful right. to me. And uh, what is, you know, I'm curious, what are features, I guess, within the app that you feel like help with that? Like what are the, some of the maybe favorite features from your perspective in terms of helping people make good dating decisions? Yeah, so one thing that I think your audience might be interested in hearing is that 25% of users who attempt to join Hinge actually drop out during onboarding. And for most companies, Mm. that'd be seen as a really bad sign. You know, there's all these points of friction and how do we decrease it? And that's something specifically at Google that I worked on is decreasing friction to increase the percentage of people who would finish the onboarding. And at Hinge, we actually take pride in that because the whole point of the app is that it's people who are intentional, who are interested in finding relationships. Maybe they've graduated from another app into Hinge and are there to find something more serious. And so if you're not willing to put in the effort of uploading six photos and answering some prompt questions, then perhaps you're not really ready for a relationship. And so it, it helps keep the ecosystem of users intentional and people who are willing to put in effort. And so I think just the thoughtfulness that the profile requires is one of those key things. And so instead of swiping, how the app works is that you comment on somebody's profile. So you click on a particular picture and you say, oh, I see you went to Machu Picchu. That's one of my dream vacations. Or you see that they write a prompt response. Let's say the prompt is my ideal plus one to a wedding. And then the person wrote somebody who knows all the words to want to be by the Spice Girls. And then you say, oh, I love 90s music. You know, what's your second favorite Spice Girls song? Whatever you want to say, right? And so it's it's leading you into conversation. So I think the quality of the profiles really matters. There's also a feature called We Met, and where after two people go on a date, or after we think that they've gone on a date, we send each of them a little survey that says, did you go on a date with this person? Is this the type of person you'd like to go out with again? And really, that's something that only Hinge does, where it's actually tracking, are we doing a good job at setting up dates? And are those dates successful? And if not, what can we do to improve our matching algorithm? And so really the emphasis on getting people onto good dates, not just time on app, I think is really important. And then a couple other small things. Um, there's something called your turn where it nudges you to respond to someone if it's been a few days and it helps us limit ghosting. And then also we have something called most compatible where Every day you see a match who we think is most likely to like you and who you're most likely to like. And that's based on the Nobel Prize winning Gail Shapley algorithm. And so really just identifying this one person that really helps people connect and focus. And so, you know, it sounds like I'm just saying the company line, but I really think that Hinge is the standout app that helps people get into relationships. And I think the features and the research that I've been a part of is truly about connection versus app usage. Great. And uh, fun fact, I was nerding out earlier today about this algorithm because I came across it as preparing for this conversation and wanted to learn more because I'm always fascinated about how we can better understand and predict behavior. So I felt like that was a 
an interesting rabbit hole to fall into. Oh, one other thing I'll say is a few years ago, I, I'll specifically say this because I think your audience might be interested in it. But a few years ago, I had a singles party where I had 27 men and 27 women go to an event. And I did a bunch of exercises and speed dating and show and tell. And a lot of it was based on behavioral science research and how do you get people to connect. And so during mm -hmm. one of the breaks, I had, well, let me start here. When people walked in, they had to put their phone away into an envelope that was sealed with a kiss and they couldn't use their phone. And they also each received a bottle cap. And the bottle cap had an image, sort of Egyptian hieroglyphics that was painted on it. And there was two of every design. And so during one of the breakout sessions, you had to find someone who had the matching bottle cap to yours. And then you had to spend that 15 to 20 minute break with that person. And so at the end of the night, when I surveyed people and I saw who connected and 70 dates came out of these 54 people, one of the most common themes was I really liked the person you matched me with for the bottle cap and you really got it right. And I connected with that person so much. And I have to tell you, Sam, it was completely random. I wasn't even in charge <laughs> right. of the bottle caps. Somebody who's a better artist than me did it. And I basically said, do one for the men and one for the women and put one of each in, in the envelopes. But because people thought, oh, Logan put all this thought into who I was matched with, mm -hmm. they assumed that that person was a particularly good match for them. And so I haven't researched this, but I think merely seeing somebody framed as most compatible, it puts you into a different mindset and it makes you more likely to want to connect with them because you think, oh, there's something about us that the app knows that means we're a good match. And now I'm going to prioritize connecting with that person. Yeah, that was actually my, somewhat my question because I randomly a couple of years back stumbled upon this obscure release of data from OkCupid, where I think it'd now be taken down. It's very hard to find now, but they pretty much shared some experiments they had done. And one of the experiments was that idea of, okay, what if we sell, tell people that they are 90% compatible, whereas they're actually 30% compatible? Like how much of a difference does that make? And had a huge difference <laughs> uh, in, in all the metrics from like obviously getting together, having a long conversation and actually going on kind of dating as well. And so... My leading from that question would just be to talk to you a little bit about how, in some way, good or bad we are at knowing who's a compatible partner. Because it feels like in a perfect world, it would be pretty easy to set up a good algorithm because you would have people with stable and kind of uh, <laughs> clear preferences of who they're looking for. And then it would just be a matter of figuring out, okay, how can we match people that are looking for similar things? And, and have those similar shared preferences and so on. But in the world that we know, in terms of from a behavioral science perspective, it's a world where people don't really know what they want. They think they want something. Uh, they might have a stated preference, but then the revealed preference is something completely different, for example, as well. And there's so many, obviously, biases that you mentioned in the book as well that can contribute to this. So how do you think about you know, that conundrum of like knowing if someone is compatible or not? Yeah, that's one of the main theses of my book. There's a chapter called You Think You Know What You Want, But You're Wrong. And it's all about that idea. And so in my dating coaching, I often had this experience where somebody would come to me and say, I'm 34. I've been dating for a long time. I know that I want a man who's over six foot, who has a master's degree and wants to raise his kids Catholic. And I don't need any help in figuring that out. I just need your help in finding him. And they saw it all about how do I just locate my type? I've already figured out who my type is. I just need to find that person. And a lot of the work that I do with dating coaching 
is actually helping people expand beyond the type and helping them understand that while they think that they know what they want, that may not be the type of person who makes them happiest long term. And in the research that I've done, talking to a lot of couples, they often say things like, I had a type, I always pursued it. When I met him, he was completely different. And I gave him a chance because I happened to be a little open-minded. I had just moved to the city or you know, whatever causes people to sometimes adopt new behaviors. And then they were like, turns out that he was the perfect guy for me, but I never could have predicted it. And so I really recommend that people who are single and don't want to be, that they approach the type with some humility. And they say, while I think I know what I want, I may be completely wrong. And then what you do about it is you say, I'm going to date like a scientist. I'm going to be more open-minded. And so if you have a hunch that you need to date someone who's over six feet tall, why don't you date some people who are not and see whether or not that's true? If you think that you need to date someone with a master's degree, try people who are and aren't and and, and see who makes you happy. And I think reframing it to relationships are about what emerges between two people. Relationships are about the side of you that somebody brings out and they are not about somebody's two-dimensional resume qualities. I think it really shifts the mindset to let me go on more dates and see how different people make me feel versus let me pretend that I'm an expert in knowing exactly what I want, filtering for that and only dating one type of person. Yeah. And um, I guess somewhat related to that or many ways is the idea of effective forecasting. What are maybe some of what you see as maybe the top cognitive biases that might be getting people stuck between, you know, wanting to find a good partner, but not succeeding. Yeah, I think knowing that we're bad at affective forecasting has been one of the pieces of research that's just really changed my life and changed how I live. And so my husband and I will sometimes talk about this. This was more pre-pandemic, but let's say it was 6 p.m. and we were supposed to go to an event and we would say, oh, we just don't feel like it. We don't feel like leaving the house. And then we would sort of say like, well, we're bad at knowing how we'll feel in the future. And so why don't we just go, we'll probably end up having a good time. And sort of just having this idea that we are bad fortune tellers made us kind of doubt our own intuition sometimes, which I think is a good thing. I think having less, I I think understanding your own irrationality can be very useful. One of the most common biases that I see in dating is the present bias and the fact that people are just so focused Mm -hmm. on what's right in front of them, and they're not necessarily making good decisions for the future. And so one of my chapters is called Go for the Life Partner, Not the Prom Date. And the idea is that the prom date is someone who's fun, they keep you on your toes, you want to have sex with them at the end of the night, but they're not necessarily the person who's going to make the great long-term partner. And the life partner is someone who might not be as initially charming, but would really be reliable and would be great long-term. And so it's not about settling and it's not about being with someone that you're not attracted to, but it's about shifting your mindset to, let's say we have a child who has special needs. Is this the person I want by my side to make decisions with? Or let's say one of our parents is sick and has to move in with us. Is this a person who I could have that hard conversation with? And really understanding that life has a lot of ups and downs and obstacles that you can't predict. And you really want to align yourself with someone who's going to make a great partner versus someone who is fun for now. Another bias that I see is the idea of the transition rule. And so this has to do with affective forecasting, right? And so there's the famous research that if you say to somebody, how would it feel to win the lottery? How would it feel to be a lottery winner? They really focus on going from a non-lottery winner to being a lottery winner. And yes, of course, that transition would feel good. But after a year, we know that because of adaptation, people actually go back to their previous level of happiness. 
And so how that applies to dating is that people get confused about falling in love versus being in love. And so there are people out there who think that they're always going to have that initial chemistry honeymoon period of the falling in love stage. And while that's amazing and one of the joys of life, falling in love isn't a constant state. Falling in love transitions to being in love. And so for people who jump from first, you know, early relationships to early relationships, always pursuing falling in love, I think that they're making a mistake and that if they do want to find a long-term partner, they have to understand that love has different phases and that you do adapt to being with someone and that you need to embrace each stage of love as opposed to just always pursuing the honeymoon. And the reason why that chapter is called F the Spark is that it's about the idea that you may not feel that initial spark with someone, but that doesn't mean that that person wouldn't be a great long-term partner. And so that's why I want you to create a rule of thumb that you always go on the second date so long as nothing you know seriously bad happened on the first date. And that rule of thumb will help you go out with more people who may not have that initial charming spark, but may actually be great long-term partners. And so just understanding these are the things that get in your way. And here's how to create rules of thumb and defaults and environments that make it easier for you to identify that great person versus writing off someone just because they're not initially charming. Yeah. It's funny. I spoke to Annie Duke last week on her latest book, How to Decide. And I feel like there's a lot of similarities between both of your books because they are both great in both providing people with better rules of thumb than maybe they used before. And he, she talks about a lot about this idea we follow our gut when we make decisions and have an over-reliance on that and we can quite easily create much better rules of thumb. And I think you did a really good job in the book of both helping helping with that, but also having tools to support that as well and, and matrices and stuff like that to, to make that easier. And uh, one kind of we're going to get into a little bit of quick fire on soon, but the last question before then is regarding habits and relationships. So we all have many good habits and bad habits in our day-to-day lives, but I'm curious on your thoughts on how they exist in relationships, um, maybe both how they form and how we can create better habits. Yeah. In terms of habits, my goal is that people stop thinking about relationships as something that you invest in every once in a while, right? So Valentine's Day is coming up. And instead of thinking about what's my grand gesture on Valentine's Day, I want you to think about healthy relationships as something where you're making a daily investment. And so Dr. John Gottman, who's one of the fathers of relationship science, this is really his perspective on things. He says small things often. It's so much more about that habit of investing in the relationship and showing effort than it is about once a year going to the Bahamas and trying to reignite that spark. And some of the most interesting research on relationships comes from John Gottman and this love lab that he ran at the University of Washington. And so they would have this apartment and they would invite couples in and they would measure them throughout the weekend. They had microphones, they had cameras, they were measuring the urine in the bathroom. They even had something called a jiggleometer. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was under the chair and it would see how much you're jiggling when you're talking, sort of a, a sign of nervousness. And they would measure how different couples interacted. And so one of the famous examples is a woman would walk to the window and say, oh, look at that boat passing by. And they would measure what her husband did in response. Some husbands would stand up, go near the window with the person and say, oh, what a beautiful boat. Or, oh, it's a lovely day outside. And, And that's called turning towards. That's responding to this bid for connection and interacting with your partner. And some partners would not respond at all, or they would respond and say, I'm reading the newspaper. Why are you interrupting me? And that's called turning away. And so six years later, 
when they looked at what had happened to these couples, they saw that some were very happily married and they called these people the relationship masters and some had gotten divorced or were together unhappily. And they called these people the relationship disasters. And what they found was that one of the biggest things that separated these two groups was how they responded to those micro moments, those bids for connection. And so the couples who had stood up and gone to the window, they turned towards each other 86% of the time. And so relationship masters make bids for connection and they turn towards those bids. The relationship disasters, they only turn towards those bids 33% of the time. And so what this tells us that it's not just all about picking the perfect person for you and it's not about reigniting the spark every year or having a big blowout Valentine's Day. It's about every day making bids to connect and turning towards your partner's bids. And that is a habit, paying attention to your partner and prioritizing them and putting away your phone and saying, how was your day? That's the key to a happy relationship. It's all about the daily habits and it's not really about those other grand gestures. Right. So yeah, it was interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, to wrap things up a little bit, we're going to move into this last section, which we call overrated versus underrated, which is this kind of quick fire round of questions where I'll use this couple of things and then you let me know if you think they are overrated or underrated as judged by society. Make sense? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Co-living spaces, underrated or overrated? Underrated. Underrated. Cool. It's okay if I disclose that you you are currently living in some form of... Uh, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So Kristen Berman, who some of your listeners might be familiar with, she runs uh, the Irrational Lab, and she and I met about eight years ago working at Google together. She started this co-living community called Radish, and I moved in last August, and it's been a great experience and a really good way to spend the pandemic. Great. I'll add a sh- in the show notes of your really beautiful article you wrote for... I think it was New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome to include it. Thank you. Great. The five love languages, overrated or underrated? Underrated in terms of how it can help people as a shortcut to expressing their needs. Overrated in terms of research rigor. Right. (laughs) Loss aversion in book titles. Underrated. How to not die alone. Good one. So I guess maybe your answer is already, but love at first sight, overrated or underrated? Overrated. Fuck the spark. Yeah, yeah. And there's a little bit of double one, but would you have one underrated and one overrated rom-com? Sure. You know, I was kind of anti-rom-com for a while. And in the book, I talk about how it perpetuates this idea of the soulmate and happily ever after and the meet cute. But during the pandemic, I found myself returning to rom-coms because it is nice to have a happy ending and it is nice to just think about love. And so I do feel like there's a time and a place for rom-coms just from a nostalgic happiness perspective, but that should not be how you derive your philosophy on relationships. And so maybe underrated. I really like the movie Hitch, maybe because he's a dating coach who needs to take his own advice and then finds love. That's the Will Smith. Yeah, I really like Hitch. I rewatched it this summer and I really liked it. Maybe overrated. What's an overrated one? If you say Love Actually, that would be a little bit No, I love Love Actually. You know what? I, <laughs> I, I think just the the concept of the meat cute is overrated if you enjoy them just as sort of a dessert rather than – if you understand their place in society, then I think rom-coms are fine. But don't use them as a way to learn about relationships. They are not reliable teachers of relationship science. 
Right. This will be very quick. Going through a couple of places, going to date in, call it a non-pandemic setting mm-hmm. where life is a little more normal. It would be interesting just to hear your thoughts on certain places if you think they're overrated or underrated to go on a date. Uh, restaurants. Overrated. Some form of sport activity, like bowling or dancing or something like that. Underrated. Going for a picnic. Underrated. Going to the cinema. Overrated. Going for like meeting at a bar or a pub. Overrated. And then last one, going for a walk. Underrated. And so the kind of key theme here is people should be going on experiential Mm -hmm. dates. People should be seeing what side of you somebody else brings out. Sitting across from each other at a bar or restaurant where you're interviewing each other and it's an interrogation and you're just about information gathering, that's not actually something that builds connection. But going on a walk and actually taking the pressure off of making that direct eye contact can actually lead to really great open conversations. And so dates, especially early dates, are about relaxing, being in the moment and getting to know someone. And so take yourself out of the evaluative mindset and put yourself in the experiential mindset and you will experience so many more connections desire attraction and i think this is actually a key change that a a key behavioral change that people should make is this is a date not a job interview and if it feels like a job interview then you're doing it wrong i love that and so last one rituals before going on a date underrated or overrated Underrated. Yes. I think that the date begins not just when you log into the FaceTime or not just when you show up to the coffee shop, but the date begins before and it's all about your mindset. And we know this is a key part of behavioral science, but mindset is everything. Mindset determines how you think something will turn out and then you actually have an impact on how it goes. And so whether you think the date will go poorly or you think the date will go well, you're right. And one of the ways that you can actually cultivate a good mindset is by doing a pre-date ritual. And so that might look like taking a bath, listening to a pump-up playlist, calling a friend, doing something that shifts you from work mode to date mode, and it actually helps you enter the date ready for connection. I love that idea. And um, the the final, final question is usually regarding how people apply behavioral science into their own life. So I'm curious if you have one example in how you've applied behavioral science either in dating or relationships or in your life in general? Yeah. So the research on biz from John Gottman that we talked about, that's definitely impacted the way that I show up in my relationship, putting more effort in, doing small things often. From the behavioral science perspective, I'm really a big fan of accountability, of incentives, of deadlines. And I am an extrovert. It's hard for me to do work by myself. And I'm really someone who had to use accountability tricks and tips to get my book written. And so what I did was every few weeks, I would have a friend host a dinner for me, an accountability dinner. They would invite 10 people that I didn't know. And I would have to send those people two chapters of my book in advance. And then at the dinner, we would review the chapters. And so even though the feedback at the dinners was very important, it was actually more about the accountability. And if 10 people are showing up for me and my friend is hosting a dinner, I'm not going to not write the chapters. And so I have really hacked my behavior in a way where I use a lot of external accountability. I do incentive structures. Like if I don't turn in my book by November 1st, and I can't have my birthday party on November 3rd, and I'm very public about it. And those things actually help me as somebody who's you know, like most of us, a procrastinator or not the best at upholding my own expectations. It really helped me achieve this goal of writing the book. Fantastic answer. I, I love that answer. And uh, big thank you. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you about all things 
relationships dating and behavioral science. And I think, obviously, I recommend people checking out your book. It's um, a really fun book in in many ways. It was enjoyable to read for me. I really enjoyed it. And um, I think in general, I also want to say thanks for your contribution to this growing kind of behavioral science community. I think we need people dedicating their work in behavioral science in different directions. And I feel like you've done a great job. Thank you, Sam. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for the kind words. I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed the book. If people want to engage with me more, they can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Logan Yuri. I have a quiz on my website called The Three Dating Tendencies, and it's a great way to figure out what your dating blind spots are. And yeah, I'm just excited to connect with more people in the behavioral science field. And I really appreciate the work that you do. And thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Behavioral Design Podcast from Habit Weekly and the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. Make sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like what we're doing here, don't forget to share it with a friend or colleague. Our fantastic show music is Murgatroyd by the wonderful Dave Pissarro. And big thanks to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another deep dive into all things Behavioral Design. Oh, do 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 do